Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. That time of the show, again, we talk about international trends. It's a trillion-dollar sports business, and we've got a lot of varied topics post-national championship, NFL playoffs, Winter Classic. We'll talk about that. NBA leading into their All-Star break pretty soon. Golf, NASCAR, international, domestic as well. Dan Calaruso, the intergalactic head of digital. How are you? I'm fine. I'm traveling the galaxy. Um, Good. Intergalactically, which is which is the way you need to do it. So we've got a lot of issues to cover all across the globe, and the first part of it is soccer. I know it's not your favorite sport, but it's business. It's not soccer. It's Qatar and the financing of the World Cup in 2022 relative to oil prices. But more important than any of that, it's the issue of the success opportunities for the World Cup and Qatar. What do we think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember, you know, when Qatar first got the World Cup, there was a lot of talk about the weather being an issue. There was a lot of talk about Qatar, like the travel issues there. Is it a tough place to hold the games? And I think it's, I think there are two interesting questions around this. I'll bounce it off you. How secure is the financing now with oil prices so volatile? Is that financing locked in at this point? Or, I mean, is this going to be an issue of oil prices come down 10% or hit a soft spot and stay there like they have in the past 18 months, two years? How are we looking at, how does Qatar, how does that help or hurt Qatar going into it? Is, is there an issue here? Well, there's an issue of how many reserve dollars they have to dip into to cover their credibility. The dollars are there. Mm. They're easy to get. There's no debt attached to it because they just take it out of the central bank. You know, I was over in Dubai, as you know, about two and a half months ago, and the interesting oil money dynamic at Dubai, Abu Dhabi, UAE, is you just dip into the treasury. And the only risk is 40, 50, 60 years from now, do we run out of oil? Well, they don't care about that. They just want to get past 2022. In Qatar's case, they have an 80,000-seat spectator facility, which the centerpiece of the, of the facility is called Lusail Stadium. Uh, the issue will be which ones of these get done, two, three, four, five, six. Does Qatar have the appetite for eight new venues after the uh, World Cup? Of course not, but they have the money to build them now. Well, they have the money to build them now. And you, you mentioned, you and I were talking earlier, you mentioned this is, this is an Olympics play for after the World Cup. Is Qatar the place you'd like to visit? I've never been. What's the allure of Qatar as an international venue? Are there other things to do there? Is it, I understand the allure of Tokyo for the 2020 Olympics. Is there that dynamic? Yeah, I'm not sure there's stability attached to um, Qatar, or is it an exciting place where we need to go to the Middle East and let's go there? But the bottom line of all of it is that's sometimes not the issue. It's whether the government wants to feel like they're going to generate tourism. You talk to the Russian government; they said Sochi's Sochi's great, even though nobody doesn't want to, nobody wants to go there. That makes enough sense, but I guess that's always the gamble, right? But it's less of a gamble, like you say, if you can dip into Treasury, spend a couple of billion dollars and and end up with eight stadiums uh, on your hands. And I guess from there, maybe you work to develop a pro league or, or try for the Olympics and try and make the place a destination, right? 
they're destined to peg this to a tourism attraction issue. You know what's interesting, though, my friend, is we've talked about this for about three minutes right now, and we're not talking about the revisiting of the Qatar bid when it was fraught with controversy years ago. They've got Russia to get through in 18, and then it's not a when, it's an if. The sense, though, after returning from the Middle East is when you put the money in the bank for the stadiums, you start paying contractors, the deals get done. It's a lot harder to take an event away. Obviously, yeah. Let's shift gears. Uh, Chinese soccer clubs spending millions, billions to bring international talent to the Chinese Super League. A very opinionated negative editorial written in the People's Daily about the trend. But you know what? It's People's Daily, so nobody cares. The government's going to say, we're doing it anyway. They've signed Oscar, Carlos Tevez. A lot of clubs' budgets on foreign players are over two-thirds of their entire expense. So what do you think? I disagree that no one cares. I think you can look at overseas or foreign non-Chinese soccer talent the same way the government now is looking at Ferraris, Versace clothes, Gucci bags, whatever you want to talk about, there's been a crackdown on luxury products in China driven by the government. I mean, it's, it's one of its main things. And they see it as a gateway drug to corruption. They see it as a gateway drug to income inequality. And they see it as a gateway drug to discord, societal discord. And I think that this is the, the Chinese government trying to send out a subtle message like, do this if you want to you know, attract some business, but don't make it a staple. Do not become the New York Yankees, because they certainly have enough enough cash or the ability to to borrow enough money to pull off nine-digit deals on a fairly regular basis. You don't want that to happen if you're the Chinese government, simply because, again, you're creating a cleave. And we cover, you know, Reuters covers China closely, and we've covered a lot of this anti-corruption thing to the point where even corporate holiday gifts have been scrutinized by the government. This is not like what happens in other leagues and other places. And I think people need to be cognizant of that. I think there's great opportunity in China. But there is that very, very nice veil falling now. And they realize that consumer debt and corporate debt are a looming problem there. They realize capital flight is another big issue. So you're going to see more of this. And don't discount the People's Daily as the not-so-subtle messenger of the Communist Party there. And it's, it's important to understand the dynamics there. You know, China is at a certain historical point now, and the government there is trying to manage things on a totally different level. So the question is, how do you get to where they are as Olympic athletes, gymnasts, swimmers? You buy them, they thought. But now the People's Daily, as you just said, that I didn't know is delivering a message. So let's stay on that story. That's the interesting thing. You know, the the problem is I think China realizes what it has. And will it ever be able to field, you know, an English Premier League worth uh, amount of talent? No, right? Or not in the next 50 years. But they understand the media proposition. They understand the audience size proposition. And I think it's incumbent on them to produce a product. They want to have the product and they want to be an international player. And soccer is one way to become part of the international community. But I think there's a very careful financial line that they have to walk there. And I think that's what you see in Come to Light. It's, 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 it's really a, a nice dovetailing of political and the financial and the athletic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, let's shift to the ice. Um, you're a you know, cold guy, so that's appropriate. Cold-hearted, um, cold-hearted. But cold-hearted, yeah. clearly, yeah. but maybe even athletic on the ice. I'm not sure. We don't want to know that. But listen, despite a minor rain and fog delay, the Bridgestone Winter Classic, the NHL's deal, a massive success, a fitting gateway to the league's centennial season. For those who don't know, Gary Bettman's idea was to put together what he's calling uh, 
weather-specific in-the-element games. He started with one. Now he's getting three next season. Blackhawks lost. Blues won. Nobody cares. 47,000 people, but it's a special event, major celebration. He's planning to do a three a year. I think it's brilliant. It's hockey for non-hockey fans. It's all the joy of hockey without the tedium of a 15-round playoffs and uh, a 500-game regular season, right? I mean, it is the single best sports innovation, I think, in the past decade. I, I don't think there's another event that's grown and captured in the imagination and taken advantage of all that's new kind of in the media and in the sport that rivals the Winter Classic. My question is, what have you done for us lately, Gary Bettman? Like, what's your next trick? Will the game have to evolve? Will there be another TV deal that will be bigger and more significant? The Sunbelt expansion, you talk about a lot of um, the, the NHL breaking into the southeastern United States, southwestern United States. I want to know, like, wh- what does Bettman do next? How does he launch off the Winter Classic what baseball used to do off the All-Star Game, now does off the World Series, the NFL does off the Super Bowl, what does he do? What would you do if you were the commissioner? Because you should be a commissioner. Well, I should be a commissioner, but I'm having more fun doing this. So I would cut the number of regular season games and probably the number of playoff games because the Winter Classic proves that a mega event is much more important than a whole series of games that get lost. I mean, that's the one thing. But as far as the business structure of the NHL, couldn't be better. He's got long-term labor peace. The uh, players respect him. They don't have to like him. The owners like him and respect him. And, uh, you know, he's going to Vegas, which I think is a, is a great idea. The Vegas Golden Knights are the new NHL expansion franchise. They're in talks with the Chicago Wolves about an affiliate. Each team in the NHL has an affiliate in the AHL, their minor league, which is a tremendous minor league. We'll talk about them in a minute. But the question is, who is their affiliate? The San Antonio Rampage is the only team that's very close. They're wrapped up with the Florida Panthers. But Bottom line is, Bettman's made Vegas a top priority. The Vegas franchise looks significant as well. They're appealing to everybody. So generally, what do we think about the NHL in, in Vegas and how they stock their team? Well, with the stocking, the team is going to be interesting. I mean, you see it in the press in New York, at least. You know, the Rangers have a bunch of mid-level players who are having surprisingly good seasons. And we're not anywhere near the playoffs. And they're already talking about who they're going to have to give up in the expansion draft. You brought it out in your interview. You have a great interview coming up with the commissioner of the AHL. And there's a supply and demand equation that, you know, the merged AHL and IHL kind of got together and created. And there's a wonderful supply and demand equation. So I think you lock in Vegas, you stock the minor league team fairly well. And again, with proximity, it's an expansion team. You're going to have a lot of guys going back and forth, (laughs) Uh, you know, because there's going to be veterans who you get and they're not going to stay healthy. They're going to be young guys who you get, and they don't quite have their NHL legs yet. There's going to be a shuttle going back and forth between Chicago and Vegas. So I think it's, it's crucial for them to have a real, legit, strong minor league relationship and franchise. And will the Vegas team own Chicago? Are they buying it? or, or? Well, they're thinking about what the relationship should be. Mm. A good question. It may just be a traditional affiliation until yeah. they're able to maneuver the musical chairs with Dave Andrews and kind of helping to find somebody closer. But the Vegas team needs to develop the long-term talent because clearly they're not going to make the playoffs early. You might be wrong. Mm. But they're building for the future. Right. Uh, in a town that uh, this is their first major league professional franchise. You know, Jacksonville, when they got the Jaguars, they went to the AFC Championship very early, yeah. maybe too early for people's right. taste. They spent a lot of money. It was a, the Jacksonville and the Panthers 
came into the league at the same time, right? Yes. The Panthers tried to build through the draft. Jacksonville went a little more veteran and did. I think Coughlin was the coach, and they and they got to the playoffs fairly quickly. But see how that's worked out. Well, yeah, Coughlin, <laughs> Coughlin was a coach, and see how that's worked out. A little bitter yeah. from you, by the way. I know you're a Giants uh, fan. You, by the just way, a you, little. Have a, you have a lot of time in your hands now doing football playoffs, don't you? <laughs> I, I unfortunately, little, my Sundays will be very productive. Every every chore in my house, every hole in the wall will be spackled. Everything will be painted. Uh, by the end of uh, February. Four of the worst wildcard games in the history of the NFL, but that's uh, another day before the Super Bowl. We'll talk about that. Our interview today, Dan talked about it earlier. Rick, I was prepared to be totally underwhelmed by your interview with the commissioner of the AHL. I thought it was, it was a terrific interview. It deals with everything from you know, mergers and acquisitions on one level, uh, both by the leagues, the, the merger of the two minor leagues, and acquisitions by some of the NHL franchises of the minor league teams. Uh, it deals with a lot of really interesting demographics, like the U.S. population shift to the Sun Belt and, and how the NHL and the minor leagues now have followed them into that. I think it's a fascinating interview, uh, maybe one of the best we've done recently. So I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of it. Well, and you will. And, and uh, you know, as we look at the interview, everybody listening We'll talk about how this relates to expanding businesses and being happy with market share and not getting out ahead of your skis. And there are a whole lot of business tips that Dave Andrews imparts. The longest-running commissioner of any major sport at any level, Dave Andrews, has been a friend but also very credible, trusted by Gary Bettman, trusted by ownership. His league spans North America, and he has a lot of things to say about economics, competition, and the future. Here's Dave Andrews. We have someone who has been in his post twice as long, we'll get into that, and frankly, near the Mount Rushmore of, of hockey commissioners. If Gary Bettman is on the center, maybe we'll say, Dave Andrews, who's been the commissioner of the American Hockey League for 20, 23. 23 years, but who's counting? That's on Mount Rushmore, man, i got to tell you. And a good friend for a long time. How are you? Great. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. You know, we've had discussions with all of the leaders in the industries, and we just had Pat O'Connor on, minor league baseball guy, who's been in his position, and to the, the de description of what's it like to run an organization which has all of the issues of a major league, but not maybe the visibility. And he said hurting cats. Is it hurting cats? Yeah, well, it was originally, I think. I think uh, over time you're not hurting as many cats once you gain uh, a certain amount of trust from your ownership group and other stakeholders. For us, those stakeholders are everyone from the NHL to our Players Association to our officials to all the people that you work with on a regular basis. And if, if you don't, if you haven't built that, that kind of trust with them, then, yeah, herding cats is, uh, is a pretty good description of what you'd be facing. What are the biggest changes in the American Hockey League, or let's say your job in the last 23 years? Well, the biggest changes in the league have been our footprint, and we've, we've expanded the league from uh, 14 when I started, and, and uh, a league that had uh, not great investment in terms of our ownership quality, and we weren't in very great markets, and, and, uh, and our relationship with the NHL was significantly different than it is today. So. Uh, the biggest change has been our footprint. We have 30 teams now, and we're stretching from Newfoundland in the east to California in the west and up to Manitoba in the north and down to San Antonio and Austin in Texas. So we, we've got a very large footprint. Uh, I think our uh, other big change is that when we merged the International Hockey League into the American Hockey League back in 2001, uh, we really created one league at the uh, AAA level, of, if you will, of hockey kind of eliminated our competition and established ourselves one-to-one -one with the NHL. So we have 30 teams, they have 30. 
going to be 31 in a year. Uh, and we are uh, joined at the hip in terms of our player development uh, role for the National Hockey League. So that's been a big change over time and obviously a, a positive change. And, and really an unprecedented development when you consider the evolution of major league sports because there's always the discussion about a second-level league or a second league. Where do they fit? USFL, WWFL, you know, way back when. And the ones that are successful are the ones that understand how to work harmoniously. Now, hockey is no different. There was the WHA, but this is so much different than any of that that I guess you could argue that stability does rule the day today. Well, it does, and it's, uh, it's partially because of the relationship that we built with the National Hockey League and understanding who we are and what role we can play for the NHL and what role the NHL can play for us. Uh, and so consequently, I think both we both see the value in the relationship between the two leagues uh, to the point now where we are, uh, you know, approaching a, a fairly significant level of ownership in our league from the NHL itself, from NHL teams. So that's changed. That's the other thing that's changed quite a bit in the last uh, really in the last five years. We, we're now at 18 of 30 teams that are NHL owned, which uh, is really a change in that uh, sort of pattern between independent ownership and and NHL ownership, and I think it's good in some ways, and then it's challenging in other ways. But they're good and challenging. I think we all understand as business people what the good and the challenging are, but if you can identify those issues beforehand, you can certainly get a, a, a jump on the problem, as it were. A absolutely, and I think we it, it's not really completely tied to the NHL versus independent owner issue, but there there are there are situations where uh, the interests of the independent owner are different from the interests of the NHL owner, and it's my responsibility to have both of those ownership groups understand each other's positions and find a happy medium in terms of, like, scheduling would be a great example where, uh, you know, NHL teams are, are not really looking, NHL-owned teams in our league are not really looking at the bottom line revenue-wise as much as they are player development. Yeah. And our independent owners are not as concerned about player development, and they're all about the bottom line. So, you know, scheduling three games and three nights in a weekend for the independent owner is something they need to do because that's where the revenue is. For the NHL owner, they don't want their players playing three times in 72 hours. Yep. And all of those issues are, are, are somewhat similar, and, and everybody understands that they, these are athletes we're dealing with, and they have agents, and they have unions. What, what are, from your perspective, some of the common interests that you and the NHL um, share going forward? Well, we have a common interest in, in growing the game, and I think to the extent that we are in 30 different markets than yeah. they are, then yeah. we are helping to grow the game for them in terms of the fan base for professional hockey. Uh, and also in terms of growing youth hockey across North America, our, our teams play a big role in that, as do the NHL teams. Um, but the biggest single raison d'etre for us in terms of our partnership with the NHL is player development. Um, our players, 90% of the players today in the National Hockey League have come through the American League. Uh, that's a big number. I mean, if you look at any roster, almost every player, uh, Pittsburgh who won the Cup last year, only two players on their team hadn't come through the AHL. So the importance of player development for the NHL, particularly in a capped system where you have to have a fresh supply of young players who are talented and skilled uh, in order to be able to work within a salary cap, uh, we've become far more important uh, kind of as part of the system of professional hockey than we were before. Dave Andrews, where does hockey go internationally relative to not only you, but generally World Cup very successful, rotating basis, everybody seems to enjoy it, a lot of discussion about expanding across the pond, but a lot of it is probably just a little bit blue sky right now, but certainly awareness, it is an international game. So how do you assess all those equities? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, the easy answer would be to say that there's a huge future for 
uh, professional hockey to grow internationally. And, and, and then when you look at the sort of systemic challenges that we face doing that, um, I'm not sure how much of a focus uh, the National Hockey League has had on really trying to think about expanding over the pond and growing the NHL itself as much as I think Gary's vision is more developing the game globally as a game and as a sport as opposed to necessarily uh, seeing you know five franchises in Europe, for example, or I, I think the growth of the game in China and the growth of the game in you know it is a global game uh, compared to some, not as global as perhaps basketball, but certainly pretty global in terms of Europe and all across uh, uh, that continent. So uh, the game is doing well overseas. I think the growth of the KHL has been, has been has shown that. So I'm not sure if there is a, a future structurally to say that the, the NHL needs to be in Europe or in China as a league as, as much as growing the interest in the game is, is important for all of us. Do you have a stake in the Olympic issue down the road? What, what would be your position, or do you just leave that to the NHL? We leave it to the NHL, although we would, uh, without a doubt, if the NHL did not participate, we would, we would take a hit in terms of players leaving our league to go and play yeah. uh, in the Olympic Games because we're the next level uh. of talent. So, so there is a position. It is interesting. Well, we, we would like them to go, but yeah. I, I understand the position that they're in. And, and when they go, it leaves a nice opening for us for a couple of weeks in North America where we're the only pro hockey being played at that time. But still, uh, it, there are a multitude of issues that are beyond my pay scale. How are you doing as far as the complement of Gary's Sunbelt strategy? I mean, we know there are a lot of Sunbelt markets that are doing very, very well and a lot of minor league markets that are doing well and some not so well. Is it inherent with the geography? Is it the weather? Or generally, where are you with that? Well, we it's a great question because we just kind of jumped into the whole Sunbelt strategy. Yeah. We moved five teams to California last year. Uh, we moved a team to Tucson this year. Uh, we have two teams down in Texas. Yeah. Uh, the only place that we haven't kind of matched the NHL's uh, expansion strategy has been in Florida. Florida. Yeah. But we're doing really well in California. We're, we're off to a good start in Tucson. I, I think the synergies between the NHL markets in California and ours are, are really strong in terms of growing the game and growing support for hockey. And, and attendance has been good. So we, uh, we saw a jump last year in revenue in our league of, of about 16%. And... Uh, uh, that wasn't all through our brilliant marketing. It was a change of markets and, and moving from some weaker markets to some really strong ones. San Diego was terrific. Ontario, California has been really good. Bakersfield's been really good. As I said, Tucson's off to a good start. So uh, we are matching up for sure. And you're looking a lot healthier personally. You're working on the tan. you got Arizona and California. <laughs> <laughs> the frequent flyer miles are happening. It's perfect as a commissioner of a 30-team league, soon to be 31. Uh, equity issues, expansion prices... How do you get new investors in the league? We don't have a lot of inventory. It's difficult to yeah. attract new investors. We're having, uh, as I mentioned, some NHL teams have purchased teams that were previously owned by independent owners. Our franchise values continue to go up and pricing continues to go up. Our, our first expansion in a long time will be uh, probably in the next couple of months to match the NHL's expansion mm -hmm. to 31 teams. You know, We're ready to do that. We, we have a, a unique situation in terms of player supply in that we match up 30 to 30, we're going to match up 31 to 31 because if we go beyond yeah. 31 teams, we don't have a player supply from the from an NHL club for that team. So it's a, it's kind of a, there, there's not a lot of supply. There's there's a fair amount of demand for for teams in our league, and and uh, you know that's a good position to be in. I was just going to say, from a leverage position, you uh, you probably get to taken uh, to steak dinners as opposed to just uh, McDonald's when you go into <laughs> go into a town and meet with some owners. Yeah. And believe me, you deserved it. So, what about uh, the uh, 
kind of long-term growth? Are there certain areas that, assuming you could get over that unlimited supply issue, are there certain markets around the country that you're currently targeting as well, or North America? I would say the trend with us has been to move teams closer to their NHL partners. And it hasn't been entirely market-driven. It's been uh, seeking the synergies in terms of uh, geographic proximity, and at the same time being far enough away that, that the NHL club is able to expand its fan base through its AHL club as well. Uh, so in, in terms of specific markets that we're, uh, we would be chasing, I think we would like to add another team uh, on the West Coast uh, as we move to 31. Ideally, we would uh, strengthen ourselves there. We have six teams out there now. Having another would be helpful. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, we're going to be continue to be driven, I think, by the need for proximity to our NHL partners. After 23 years, what's next? Well, I'm not sure. I, I, I think I'm getting towards the age of, uh, of perhaps doing something different. I, 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 this is, I said, is my 23rd year. Next year's 24th. I have a contract that sort of uh, gives me the flexibility to step down uh, when I see fit and uh, continue on as chairman of the board beyond that. I think it depends a little bit on, I, would, I think it's probably very soon going to be time to pass it on to someone else to take the lead. It'll be better for the league in some ways. And, and uh, having been in one job, I had never been in one job for more than five years prior to this, and now I'm in 23 years in the same spot, which I, I certainly didn't see coming. But it's been, it's been wonderful, and uh, I think I have to believe there's, there's other things I can do in life that are going to be fun and interesting that will be a little bit different, which probably one should have the courage to step out and go do. Uh, do you think you are the chief financial officer? Are you the general counsel? Are you the chief psychiatrist? I mean, what are the traits that uh, you call on probably more than any in your 23 years of running this place? You learn to be all of those things in, in this kind of a position because we don't have the resources to have, uh, you know, a chief technical officer or a chief legal officer that's on board. So, uh, you know, I'm involved in, in labor negotiations. I'm involved in marketing. I'm involved in all of our broadcasting. I'm involved in the actual game itself in terms of the integrity of competition and disciplinary action. You wear a lot of hats. In the beginning, you have a lot of learning to do, and over time you learn how to manage expectations, and I think you also need to be trusted. Once you build a certain trust level with all of your stakeholders, life gets an awful lot easier. Well, certainly Dave Andrews has created a template for how to run a league, and it is interesting, ironic, and important and beneficial for the sport that the top two elected administrative officers of the top two leagues in hockey have stewarded their respective leagues for almost a quarter of a century and have that same kind of trust and confidence to, to run things very well. I really mean that. Thank you, Dave. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. Much appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.